0: everybody, this is MG and I'm Elizabeth Pudwell and we are Sober Sisters Talk. Welcome. Welcome. So Sober Sisters Talk is a podcast that MG and I do every week. We try to do it every week and we try to bring to you our experiences working several programs and just share with you what we have come across in our lives. And I like to say I don't know how to keep anybody else sober
1: but I know what works for me. And that's what we want to encourage people to do in this podcast
0: is to figure out what works for them. And that's where MG and I are a little bit different because I like to tell people what to do and think that I can keep them sober. (laughs) (laughs) But we just invite you to listen. It's fun, and it's also really educational. We cry, we laugh, we do a little bit of everything. We have guests, we work the steps. It's great. So
1: stay tuned to the next podcast coming right up. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email Talk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. Thank you. Stay tuned. Hi, everybody. This is
0: MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell, and together we are
1: Sober Sisters Talk. Welcome.
0: Welcome, everybody.
1: And today we have our special guest, Lucy.
0: Hi. And she is...
1: Welcome, Lucy. Welcome, Lucy. And uh, she's someone that I knew from New York. She's a sober sister, and uh, I am really excited to have her. She's also a mental health professional, and I wanted to have her on today because there's so much going on in the world that we need mental health professionals for. But yet i worry about my mental health professionals are they okay are they able to like deal with the stress i have a little bit of codependence and caretaking that comes out around that
0: we so, all do you yeah know. i mean everybody has that and you know i'm so excited about this like this this whole technology thing it enables us to um to just reach everybody so lucy um uh, MG and I have a meeting on Friday night, and, um, you know, somebody was asking me about it last night, and I was like, hey, we have people from all over the world at that meeting, and we do, like, it's awesome, you know, uh-huh. so, and that's due to technology, you know, but before we started, and before we started recording, we were just having a little um, conversation, because I'd read something about fear, and how I can see All of my addiction is tied up into this concept of avoiding fear, not being afraid to confront it, but just completely (laughs) doing a left turn, a U-turn, going the other way. I don't want to confront that person. You know, I don't want to go to that meeting because so-and-so might be there. And I was using the analogy of me walking my dog. Um, I have a dog that I adopted a few months ago, and she's awesome. I love her. But she's not really good, and I'm not really good when we confront other dogs. And so I have crafted all of these pathways in my neighborhood where I know I'm not going to run into a stray dog. Or if I do, I even turn around and go the other way. And um, that's my, you know, that's why I picked up drugs. That's why I picked up alcohol. That's why I let somebody have sex with me when I was 14. All of those things is because I didn't want to deal with whatever would happen if I said no or whatever would happen if I'm, you know, really going to honestly confront that situation full on. But Lucy, that's
1: learned behavior, right? We're not taught the skill set to deal with fear or like, you know, I never had my mother like say, okay, if someone bullies you in school, here's what you do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that so much about fear is also just like this kind of quest for like this quest for, Perfection or the right answer or the goal is to do ev- ev- everything completely right, and I think that I saw that a ton in the rooms. I saw that a ton, you know, in active addiction of um, I gotta make sure, you know, like I gotta make sure, like if I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna drink the whole bottle, or I'm gonna, you know, like I'm gonna keep, you know, I gotta go, a- you know, I gotta go a hundred percent all the time. And I think that even though I've been sober for coming up on, I'll have ten, I'll have ten years in Sep in September, which is wild, and we can go into a bit into that later. But thinking about just like how this avoidance of just like feeling is still here, yeah, and how and how much we have used drugs and alcohol just to do that very thing, which is to avoid a feeling. And so much, I think, of what my work has been in sobriety and also in my professional work as being a therapist is just talking to people and myself about what is this feeling that I'm having, where where is it coming from, and how can I tend to, to it so it doesn't run wild in my life, so it doesn't run wild in my relationships, so it doesn't run wild at work. And I think that I'm glad that we're talking about fear because I think that fear can just be such like a motivating factor to stay hidden to keep things yeah. hidden that we're having a problem with you know right now yes exactly
0: it's rampant yeah well you I'm- know the other thing that I thought of too Lucy was like you know you're a new mother and you know what what do you advise parents around this like how what would you tell you know parents how do we how do we do what MG just said you know if you are confronted with a situation that that scares you, you know what what do you do?
2: yeah, I think that's so much about um like feeling scared as a response to not feeling like there's safety or security, and I think that when we think about like really small kids and like the example that you gave right, like my mom you know didn't kind of teach me these things that if we're able to kind of provide a like a foundational un- understanding of what trust and security looks like within ourselves within a relationship, and that might mean you know like i'm you know you can trust me that I won't yell at you if you come to me with a problem, you know, that I'm not going to cast you out if you've done some, some something, quote, wrong, right? Um, I think that, too, with, like, new parents, and when I just look at myself when I was, like, a new mom in, like, the first month, I was terrified of taking my child, like, out of the house. Like, I just, like, I couldn't, like, think about just, like, going out on a walk. Like, I was like, yeah. what if something happens, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, I I need to kind of just, like, take a pause and settle into myself and be like, well, what do I need right now? Do I need, reassur- like, do I need reassurance from my partner that says, like, I think you're a great mom. I think that the baby will be just fine. Do I need to take a moment and connect to my higher power and be like, I need some help on this. Like, I kind of need you to feel, you know, like I need to feel that you're here. You know, like, what do I really need right now? And a lot of that just requires a pause. We move so much. We move on to the next thing all the time. You know, and I think that really can like really connecting with that is actually just
1: pausing pause when agitated. I just that's one of my favorite things in the big book, you know, stop for a second. Well, and for me, you know, it it was uh, last week where I had like and it was uh, it was around like, you know, the death of George Floyd. So it was actually a little bit you know longer than that. And it was like I was just heavy the whole day. And I was just like, you know, I'm I'm feeling heavy. And I just noticed, and all day long, it's like, I'm feeling heavy. And just the sadness around what had happened. And so it was like, I didn't want to eat about it. I didn't want to do anything to get myself out of it. Because I thought, this is important to feel this. And that, you know, feeling sad and heavy for a day is not going to kill me. And in a way, it was a precious feeling because it's like, I think that that sitting with the feeling helps me to understand it, sort of like, you know, uh, plumb the depths, if you will. And then to go from a place from action, like, you know, what can I do? And uh, so it was really helpful for me just to kind of stay in it. And I know it's like, I love that thing. Feelings aren't facts. You know, I love that saying. And Mm -hmm. it's about, uh, it's not... It's not like I'm dying. It's just a feeling, and it will pass. And I like to tell my sponsees that when you're having these extreme feelings, it's just like a thunderstorm, and it's gonna pass. The clouds are gonna go by, and so just you know, stay sheltered, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then when it passes, you can go out and enjoy the sunshine. Yeah,
2: yeah it's funny what sits, uh, but what sits behind me in my office, even though I haven't been to my office in many months, right? Uh, therapists are doing stuff on zoom these days but what sits behind me in my office is this picture or this like drawing of these paper air of these paper um airplanes and one of them says feelings come and the other one says feelings go um and it is a reminder of what you're saying right that like these aren't going to be here for like these aren't going to be here forever
0: right and i I think think that's like you know the the definition of of um my addiction, though, is, like, having that fear of those very intense feelings. And I'm an intense person, you know, and my feelings do feel like they're very, very intense. And I do think that that's, like, you know, drove me to, you know, smoking pot, drinking, and all of those things, which led eventually to the intensity of a, of a, you know, physical, sexual relationship.
1: And also a felony in jail time, Elizabeth. Um uh, yeah. I might edit this out Lucy but my sponsor is a felon you know?
0: all right you can I, leave it in there I don't care I mean it's, it's, <laughs> right it's of the story right yes it's well it's in and it's in the it was in the Houston Chronicle so it's like all right Google all right it. but yeah. yeah so tell us you're so you look so young you look like you're not even 30 years old you know and you've got 10 years sober and and a little how, how'd you you know to how give us the here? edited version how'd you get here good
2: yeah. Um so I mean I think I mean that's very kind of you to say I think that I do credit that to not drinking you know um uh yeah I'm uh 33 um and yeah got sober at 23 um and I think that one thing that I I was think I was thinking about this before we came up around that I haven't really thought about my story in a while and yes this will be an edited version of course but um just thinking about how close it feels and yet so far away, and I remember being in the rooms and watching people celebrate 10 years and 20 years, and um, hearing them talk about how important it is to keep it close, um, and to also know that um, just, like, that there has been things that have shifted, that it's okay to say, like, I have had a bridge back to life, you know, Um, and that it's not, like, if I don't do any kind of, you know, like, it's Like, it's not like work is not a part of that now, but it does look different for me. And I think that's important for me to say out loud that things that I needed when I was two years sober, I need less now, but there's a lot of foundational aspects that I return to all the time. I very strongly believe that I am a person that cannot drink safely. And, and I think that if I didn't get past that first step, um, that I wouldn't have been able to get here. I really needed to truly believe that I was someone that was powerless over alco- alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And I think that like, when in doubt, I returned to that idea. Um, I- can I just comment on that really quick? Yep. Because
0: I do think that that is like, if that's part of the cunning, baffling, powerful deception of the addiction is that maybe I can do it. It's that I always have that thing with maybe, Maybe, maybe maybe i can maybe i can maybe this time you know and that it is it lures us yeah. you know as addicts and it it kind of like it's in pursuit of you like that rings true to me full board like i cannot drink responsibly i do not know how the world is a better place with me not drinking
2: yes yes <laughs> and i think that part helps me too right like even if, like, the fact that, like, I haven't drank in such a long time, the fact that I still know in my head, like, what cold vodka, like, like, feels like or smells like or tastes like, like, that, like, matters to me. I, had a,
0: thought, I had a physical reaction to you saying that. Like, I <laughs> might, you know, yes.
2: Yes. And I think that people that can drink like a normal human don't have that response. Like, they just don't have that stored in their body. You know, like, I am married to someone that has a very normal and healthy relationship with alcohol and whole have, um, you know, in early sobriety, I don't think I could, I mean, that's some of the reason why I lived at the Quaker house was that we weren't allowed to have alcohol in the house. So it was people like me and Mel who were there because we were sober and then a bunch of weirdos that were totally fine with not drinking, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um but like my husband can have you know three beers in the fridge and like forget that they're there it drives me nuts like I'm like there's like like there's beer in there like you can go get it yeah (laughs) Yeah. go take care of that (laughs) right and I'm like right because I'm an alcoholic like that's why I look at that beer and I think like that and and I think that's just like helpful knowledge for me to stay connected to my story um
1: Well, and and I can remember, like, being out with someone, and they were on call, and and they were having a drink, and I'm like, well, you're on call. He's like, you know, I'm going to have one drink. It's fine. And then he got paged, and he was like, he just had a fresh, new, beautiful cocktail, and he had taken two sips. He's like, okay. And I'd be like... Let me finish it before I go. You know, it's like it, now. It
0: goes back to that thing in the beginning, what you said, Lucy, about the perfection, you know, that we have to do it perfectly, you know, like that. There's that, you know, it's like clean your plate, that type of mentality,
2: you know? Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, and that's, def- and that's definitely how I drank. I, I've never consumed one drink in my life. I think that a glass of wine is a bottle of wine. Um, you know, my drink of choice was, was, uh, room temperature, like vodka with tap water with a little squeeze of lemon, I mean, it got real sad, you know, (laughs) Um, and I think that I have to remember that, like, when I see people like having a glass of rosé outside when people used to, you know, go to bars and things like that, um, or they have, you know, like a frosty beer or something, I'm like, I I never drank like that, there was never a time in my life where I drank one beer and stopped, or, you know I just had a cocktail with dinner. I mean you know I, I, I was also an early drink drinker, but you know right it, it was it was perfection it was perfectionism as in 100% of alcohol all the time. Um, you know I was born and raised in the mid in the Midwest. I'm from Iowa. I went to college in, in, in um, Indiana that's where I got sober. I got sober in a room full of old farmers and based in the basement of a church in Bloomington in Indiana. um, Bless your heart. Yeah, I was the the only woman and the youngest person there by about 25 years. So whenever someone says, I don't think I can get sober where I'm living, I say, I think you can. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: Well, and I I love that part of the story, Lucy, because, you know, they welcomed you and they embraced you and they taught you and they nurtured you. And I believe that they gave you a foundation like there's nothing like some old timers that are just going to be straight up honest with you. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's finding the similarities, not the differences. You know, we can always do that. There's two ends of everything. You know, you can pay attention to this or pay attention to that.
1: Right, yeah. and they, they could be like MAGA hat wearing, and you could be ultra liberal, and it doesn't matter, you know, you right. can go into that room, and I make up that it can be this, you know, sacred space where we can talk about, you know, being alcoholics.
2: Yeah, and that's totally what, I mean, what I saw were um, people that were sure very different from me in some ways, but that they felt peace in their lives, and I was like, these people seem peaceful, I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stick around because I really don't feel peaceful right now. I'm incredibly alone. You know, I got sober in September, and my and my fiance at that time um, had left me in August and said, "I can't. I can't marry an alcoholic." So I gotta go. Um, and you know, in between him leaving and me getting sober, there was a drunk driving arrest, um, which I'm thinking even more about in lieu of what's been going on in our country. With um, violence towards Black folks, that you know, I got, a, I got, a, I got arrested. Um, but before getting arrested, I led the cops on a small chase because I was like, I can't be the person that's getting stopped because one, I don't have a drinking problem, and two, I'm a white lady, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep driving, right? And so one, so one cop car became three, and they stopped me, and I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And I blew a .15, which if I blew like a little bit more, it would have been a felony charge in the state I was in. I was charged with a hit and run. I still don't know what what I hit, and that's something that is a big part of my program and just thinking about my sobriety. Is that like there's an un like there are unknown parts of our stories that we don't know, and I think there's a lot of um, fear and hurt around that. Um, I, I don't think I hit a person. I think there would have been a bigger charge if that was the case. But there's a lot surrounding my drunk driving arrest. And that was, of course, not the first time I drunk drove. Drunk driving is a really big part of my story. I think it's a big part of anybody's story that is from a place where there's not public trans, transit and there's not a lot to do but sit, sit and get drunk in the woods, you know? So was that
0: arrest, like, when you got sober?
2: No. Um, I, I got arrested on September 11th. Um, and I didn't get sober until September 20th. So there is these days in between that are, are really shaky in my mind. It was, I was alone in my apartment. Um, at the time I was working at the hospital as a like case, as like a case manager. Um, and I was still going into work. Um, and the women that worked in my department were kind of like older moms and they, they knew that something was wrong. I got a lot of, like, you you don't look very well. Are you sick? Are you okay? Like, there was a lot of that kind of question, and I would kind of push that away, like, oh, it's fine. I, re, I remember, I, I was in jail for just, like, a day, a day and a half or something. And um, when I got released, the my very first thought was, there's a warm Coors Light on my counter, and I can't wait to get home and drink it. Um, and I I remember like the night before I got sober it was a really bad drinking night I like fell in a bunch of bushes my kind of friend slash partner slash just like general life manager at the time I mean he really um he's like my guardian angel angel and each each sobriety anniversary I always reach out to him um and say thanks for helping me stay alive um but I remember I woke up in his bed and he was like Lucy I'm really concerned about you and I, like, puked a bunch, and then I grabbed a bottle of whiskey and just started to chug it. And it was the first experience where I really felt like I physically did not have control. Like, I had understood the mental and emotional, like, I need to drink. I really want to drink. I'm obsessed with drinking. All I think about is when I can drink. But there was this switch that went off that was, like, I physically can't control this. And I was, like, shaking and... Um, I somehow got myself home and I woke up on my bathroom floor and I said, if I don't quit drinking, I'm going to die. And I, I, I really had to get to that place of, I, I truly think I'm going to die. I don't know when. It could be in a year. It could be in five. But I will die from this.
1: And talk about that moment when you, when you thought about going to AA. Because yeah. there's a, so that, there's, a, there's a lot of people in the no, program. Not <laughs> that.
2: Anything but that! It's not that bad.
1: So, so
2: I love my first meeting story because it shows. Um, I think the presence of a higher power. I'm not so. I was raised Catholic. Catholic. My mom is very is very religious still, but I we had the room to kind of make a choice about that after we were con, after we were confirmed. And I'm not. I mean, I do identify as a Quaker. Like Quakers or a part of my life that's not, like, I'm not a very religious person, Person, but that wasn't a, de- but that wasn't necessarily, like, a deterrent for me, um, so I, I got sober on the 20th, and the 21st was my first meeting. Um, I did call my mom and said, I think I'm an alcoholic, and she said, I'll send, I'll send um, you the books that I sent to Maddie, because my middle sister went to re- went to rehab for her first time the July before I got sober, it's taken her a while, but my sister does have over a year sober now and is firmly in the program. And it's a beautiful thing, right? Mel may re yes. Mel may re- be yes. a Oh my
1: God. Yeah. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. Um. So I called my mom and I don't remember a lot of what she said, um, but I know she was like here to kind of help. Um, so I remember I said, you know, I think I need to go to AA. So I looked up a meeting And I went, and it happened to be at, like, a treatment center, and so I went up, and they said, oh, this is actually just for people that are in the outpatient program, um, but you can go to this meeting instead. And I was like, okay, I could go home and drink, or I could keep going to this meeting that they told me to go to, and I have no idea what got me to not go home, and I think, like, that's what a higher power is to me. So I went to the second option, which was at a half, which was at a halfway house, and I walk up to the house and I was like, "Is this where the drunks are?" Um and they, <laughs> and they said, "Yeah, but it's just for people that live in the house. It's not for outside folks." And I was like, "Okay. I is this telling me I should drink? Is this telling me I should keep going?" And they said, "But I don't want you to go home. So here's another meeting that you can go to." And I said, if this meeting is at another fucking place I can't get into, I'm going to go home and drink. But I go and it's a church and I was like, "Okay, this looks like more of like a meet like a meeting I've seen in the movies, right?" And I um and I go in and I am by far the youngest person there and I sit in the back and I um just cry. I just wailed the whole time. I think someone was talking about like now i can be a part of like a kickball team and it's like a bridge back to life or something and i and i was like i hate this person i hate this person <laughs> so much um and i just sat there and cried and then there was a woman that came up to me afterwards and said if you're crying i think you're in the right place and like that just i was like i'm in the right place like i'm not really sure what that means but it felt good and she said i want you to go to this meeting tomorrow and here's a big and here's a big book and i went and I have no idea why I went no I just I have no I have no idea I mean my entire life up to that was just like hauling ass and you know like doing as much as I could in work and in my relationship so that people wouldn't talk about my drinking I you know I was like if I am perfect if I do all my stuff in sc- you know like I graduated from college with great grades I was a part of a bunch of shit you know because I because I was like, if I do all this stuff, then nobody's gonna tell me I need to quit drink drinking. So I, I started to go to this meeting, and I brought my big I brought my big book each time because I thought it was like a class. Like I was like, okay, here I'm in, for, you know, like I'm here for like the drunk people. I'm
0: gonna study. Yep. Yeah. What do I do? What uh-huh. are the rules? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my homework? Yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I didn't get a I didn't get a sponsor till I moved to New till I moved to. New York. I moved, to New, I moved to New York when I was six months sober. My first step was making sure I was in a sober kind of housing, and that's how I found the Quaker House. Um, and then I started to go to meetings at Perry Street, um, really small meeting, and I saw a young person in the room, and I went up to her and said, you're the first young person I've seen in AA. And she, and she was like, well, there's a lot of us, um, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that you talked to me. And she was a couple years younger than I was. She got sober when she was 19. She had three years on me, and we started to work the steps. She came from a really old school, kind of big book person, and I needed that. I needed this. I really needed the structure.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the way my sponsor is. Elizabeth Pudwell is my sponsor, and that's the way she is. Because my
0: sponsor is like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah old school. This is the, you know, we used the big book to do the steps and yep. everything was written. And yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I mean, we went through each page and outlined and she went through each note. I mean, we really went through it and we did the whole 12 steps, 12 traditions. We went really slowly. We stayed on the first three steps for months um, because I couldn't quite get to the idea that maybe at some point when I'm older, I'll be able to drink. Like,
1: I was so focused on, I'm doing this so I can drink safely, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In SLA, we we say, you know, you need to go into no contact with your qualifier for six months. And the truth is, it's forever. But, you know, I couldn't hear forever. I was like, okay, I I, 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 I can do it for six months. I can do that. But, you know, after six months of being in program and, you know, being in the rooms, you realize there's, I don't need to... Yeah. I have anything well, to do with the that. thing
0: is, is what I really hear from, especially, I think um, I have a couple of sponsees that are very young and got sober in their teens, and um, really admire and respect that surrender that at a very young age that you realize, like, I this is my life. This is a lifestyle yeah. I adopt, and and it doesn't come instantly. Like I think you know, all, I don't know. I mean, I definitely was like, it it was a stopgap. I'm going to, I just don't want to go to jail. I don't want you know, I'm Mm going to judge. I'm going to, you know, do this for my family to get off my back. And and I'm going to like, it's a stopgap. I'm going to use this until, and I don't even remember what point I just went like, you know what, this is my, I'm in, I'm in completely. And I think it's a, it's a transitional A gradual, you know, evolution of accepting sobriety. And I do remember being in a meeting and, um, it was all me and a bunch of men. We were downtown, um, Houston and, um, they were all professional men and they were all, we were talking about feelings and these guys, um, you know, were, were sharing very intimate feelings that they had. And I thought, man, I feel really like I just had this like burst of love and acceptance and I was like I feel really loved and and good in this meeting like this just feels really good I mean I feel close to these men and um I was like I think that's what I want you know that's and it was like the settling into like okay like if I can come here and feel like this I can do this
2: I mean, I think that's so spot on like this feeling of kind of close of closeness and love is a special feeling that I have like that kind of closeness I've only felt in the rooms. I mean, I think that there's there's been many times that because when I first moved to New New York before school started, I was just walking to meetings like I I was going to a meeting every, 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 every day, it was how I was getting to know the city and there were so many times I would walk into the room and just be able to like, listen to what, to how someone got there and what their life was like, that I was like, it's not so much that like, I want exactly that, but like just this feeling in the room um, is something that I don't think that folks really know until you've been into a meeting, you know, like I, I, re- I mean, and just like the laughter, I mean the joy that happens that is so right alongside just, just like devastation and pain. Like I was like, I want this, I, I want this nuance in my life. You know, I don't want so like so much of what I think leads us to drinking and drugs is this black and white think thinking. Right. And I think that it's still like, I think it's still something that we all work on when we're sober, but it's this kind of nuanced, ability to hold these feelings of pain and to see joy that I really see in the rooms. And even though that like, I am not someone that has a really like active AA life right now, but whenever someone asks me, how did I get sober? I just gush about being in AA. Like it is such a, it is such a foundational aspect for me and was a huge part of my life for so many years. And, and, and it's still how I think now, right? Like I'm, you know, like I'm still kind of in that thinking, um, and it just makes me think about like, um, there's one thing that I heard in the rooms that really got me to stay was, um, this guy was talking about how he went back to his hometown after having a couple of years sober and he was meeting up with his old friends at this bar that he used to drink at a lot. And he was like flooded with all these memories of what it was like for him to drink there. And he walks in the bar and his friends who know that he's sober, look at him and say, what are you doing here? You don't belong here now. And for whatever reason, I just burst out crying. I was like, that just meant so much to me to be like, right? like I don't belong in those rooms now. I am not some, I mean, I think that there's plenty of sober folks that can go hang out in bars and that's just fine. And that works for for them. But for me, I'm not someone that can do that. And that like, there is another place that I belong in, you know, like there are some other rooms that I can go to. And just like hearing that kind of like, acceptance around just like this massive change in life was really really important for me to hear that it's not that I just put down the drink like I, like there needs to be an overhaul here and it's not going to happen all at once it's not going to happen in one year you know
0: well and i is rooted in my sense of not feeling known not feeling important, not feeling yeah. significant. Yeah. And that is that feeling that I had in that room with those men. I felt like they know me, I know them. This is it, it's intimacy. It's mm-hmm. it's vulnerability and intimacy.
1: Well, and I love that you talk about how your story has changed, and I mean, and there's all of us in our, you know, stories of recovery where, you know, like when I was in New York, you know, I was in graduate school, and I wasn't able to go to a lot of meetings, or I would choose to do, like, listen to speaker tapes, you know, that was a big thing back then, and, you know, our stories evolve as we go through life, and, you know, you've got a new baby, you're a new mom you're, excuse me, you know, you're doing something extraordinary right now in the middle of a pandemic, P.S. And, uh, you know, and so it's like things have changed. You know, I've been going to only Zoom meetings for my program and it's fine. It's not the same, but it's fine. But, you know, I also had an experience it was on the meeting um, that Elizabeth and I host on Friday nights for Sober Sisters and it wasn't like this Friday, but it was the Friday before where I think there was a newcomer sharing and really in tears. And, you know, I felt her pain, but then I also felt her pain from my place of, you know, serenity and recovery and hope and happiness. And, uh, and it was like, it was, it was really a special meeting and a special moment. And so, you know, I still stay connected, but it's different. Mm -hmm. So, um, You know what? What do you what do you hope for for your sobriety? What what's what do you hope for? Because I think that it's important to talk about you know what happened, you know what's the story. How does it say uh, what it was like? What happened and what it's like now? But I like to say, you know, let's look forward even further.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think I think that some of the reasons that my like recovery program shifted shifted is when I just got like further into my career um because i think that what was happening was that like i need a break from talking about drugs and alcohol a lot of what my practice like my main areas that i focus i mean i work with a lot of people with subs, with substance use so i work a lot with like sex and gender um i i'm in private practice but i'm currently at a group practice that that focuses on queer and trans health um, and um i'm one of the main people that you know takes on clients that have drinking and drug pro- problems and i think that what was happening for me was that, like, I need to feel like there's a line between my work and my personal life. So, like, how I think about my sobriety needs to be a, a like, a notch less public. Um, it was even happening in New in New York when I was working at the Drug and Alcohol Center. I, I think I was still at the Quaker House in that time, and I would see clients at meetings and. There were some clients that I was like, I'm glad we're both here. Like, this, you know, it, it, it just kind of felt like I wasn't quite in control of, like, the privacy of my space. And that's different in Philly because I'm not, like, working at a drug and alcohol clinic. But I think that I also didn't want to go to a meeting and just be up in my, like, clinical mind, right? Like, I needed to have a space where I could think about why I'm sober. Right. And I think that that's changed in some ways, of like, I think that like I just read and consume a lot more, just like media talking about sobriety. Um, I feel like I've stayed in contact with folks that are sober. I think over the years, a lot of people from my hometown have gotten sober or are on the way of getting sober. My old best friend, Mel, you might re- you might remember, he's been sober now for like eight years or something. It's an amazing
1: story. It's
2: huge, yeah. Um, so I think that just like continuing to like. Be someone that folks know like oh yeah like Lucy's still sober like I can talk to her about this like I think that's been really helpful in terms of like how we like reaching out to new like reaching out to newcomers and stuff like that um I think too that just in my work um there's a big push for harm reduction right now which I think you know it's important to save lives I think it's important to have safe needle sites right um Philly is one of the first cities that is really like pushing for for that um But I also feel like I'm the abstinence voice sometimes of, like, this is also an option still. Like, it's not just, like, an old religious option, you know? Like, this is actually what worked for me. Um, And I think that that's been really important, that kind of in this push for harm reduction to be, like, there's still this program that works great for a ton of people, and it's free, and I, you know, I come from from it, you know? Right. Uh, And I think that's uh,
0: how yeah. I love that that because I think that you know you when we first started I, I shared that I had written a an op-ed piece about my sobriety um for the chronicle and um one of the a, a couple of weeks ago one of the young reporters asked me um you know he came to my desk and he said how have you dated in sobriety and what's that like and um I think that there is this I love that you're sort of out there but not but protecting your own space. And we all have to do that, you know. We all have to like sort of like protect our space in whatever way. There's people who don't want anybody to know and I honor that and and mm-hmm. respect it. But I also love it when somebody is a little bit out there so that, you know, somebody who's curious like what does that look like? You know,
2: I think I may be drinking and it's affecting my dating and I, you know. Yes. I think it's incredibly important to have examples that we know. I mean, I think too that like I, I am someone that is like, I mean, I'm grateful that I work in a workplace where like the person that owns our practice is coming up on 20, 25 years sober. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just like an out part of our like practice, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, i I just remember this client that I had at my drug and alcohol clinic that I worked at that said, I truly don't believe that young people are sober. Like, he's like, I just don't think it exists. Like, I think that people are lying. I think that people are just doing it like <laughs> a bit of drugs on the side. Like, you're drinking a beer here, here and there. And I was mm-hmm. like, like, this is actually an important, like, clinical mo- mo- like moment to be like. I'm actually sober, like I am right. a young person who is sober I know? got sober
1: when I was 26, you know and <laughs> I think for women, I think that there's a part of I don't know if it's in the new edition but it's like, you know, women drink differently it impacts them quicker, sooner and uh, more devastatingly and so I, you know, I'm raising my hand I was a young person
2: mm-hmm. when I first,
1: you know, started too well, I love that, I love that So we're at uh, 1043, and I feel like it's time to kind of wrap up. So, Elizabeth, do you have anything else you want to ask about Lucy? No,
0: I love your story. I love your energy. I'd love to invite you to come on to our um, meeting and tell your story. I think it would be powerful. I love, um, you know, when somebody gets, I think it is a unique set of circumstances to get sober very young. You know, I was 39 when I got sober, so I was a little bit older, and, um, you know, I think when you're in your 20s, I think it's a lot more challenging, but I love that it's possible, you know, and that you saw it, that you felt, you know, and were aware of that higher power going, you know, I don't know that I would have gone to more than one house. (laughs) Right, yes.
1: Right, and you know, I feel like the enemy, the enemy, Satan... And, you know, the Judeo-Christian view, you know, was putting roadblocks. No,
0: no. And, hey, look, you know. Keep going. How far is she going? You know, it's like the prod. Like, how far are you willing to go? You know? So, And it's, I think that is the thing is, it's like, how far are you willing to go? You know, you've got to be willing to push yourself and face that fear and go back to right back to where we started. Face that fear of whatever it is, like, you know, life without... Drugs, alcohol, sex, acting out, binge eating, whatever. Oh. Thank you so much, Lucy. It was a thanks. pleasure.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It was really it was really, really great to connect with both of you and to just to take some time and think about sobri- and just to think about sobriety. And yeah, if you, you can, I would like to get an
0: hour like at, on a Friday night, let us know. We'll we'll have you on tell your story. We'll pull sure. Yeah, I will.
1: I love it. Lucy, you look so good. I'm so proud of you. You're just, I just want to kiss your sweet cheeks because you're just, (laughs) I'm just so proud of just your courage and, you know, uh, all the hard work that you've given to yourself. And now to your sweet family and that sweet Linus. I was hoping I could get to see a baby this morning, but that's okay. Okay, that's good. Thank God. It's all about the baby. It's all about the baby. Okay, dear. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you. you. And I'll have this podcast up like by Friday. So, you know, no worries.
0: Okay. Thank you for listening. If you are listening, don't forget we do have um, a meeting Fridays at 6. It's a women's meeting Friday at 6 central time. If you um, send us an email to sober sisters talk at gmail.com, we will send you the Zoom link, and you can join us. It's a great meeting.
1: Thank you, guys. Until next time. Bye. Bye. So if you want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at talk at gmail.com.
0: Or you can check out our other episodes at talk.com. And we're also on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, and there you, we have them all lined up. You can see them. You can get a little description. You can share it. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time,
1: bye.